just going to make another adjustment. Dancing in the moonlight. Is that better? It's cut me in its spotlight. It's all right. Dancing in the moonlight. Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. You're very welcome to the Football Talking Tour podcast with Senior Times. My name's Aon. And I am Gary. So we're delighted to welcome Niall Quinn to our podcast. Hello, Niall. Hey, guys. How are you doing? So, Niall, um, you came on our football walking tour, and uh, I know that you said you were radicalized by it, which we thought was hilarious. But we, we, we can talk about... Uh, <laughs> We can talk about your your, your football career uh, uh, later, and I know that um, you've done a thousand interviews on that. But what's really what we really want to get into today is your interest in in, in Oscar Trainer, um, who we talk about on on our football tour because obviously there can be a sense a hundred years ago during the revolutionary period that you know as Harry Boland said that the uh, the GEA put a line in the sand between the garrison and the Gael. And if you played Gaelic games, you were more Irish and more in tune with the revolutionary ideals. However, Oscar Trainer, who many people would know as being a road across the north side. Or a shopping mall in uh, Northside Shopping Centre. Or Center, a shopping mall in Northside Shopping Centre. Um, but no, you, you, you've taken an interest in Oscar Trainer. And um, like, what is it that first sparked your interest in this, in this really interesting football man? Well, I, I spent a bit of time in the FAI uh, in the sort of restructure of the FAI and in the boardroom in, in uh, Abbottstown, there's a room full of photographs of former presidents of the FAI, some who I knew, some whose names I knew, but none had the term of office that Oscar Trainer had. And I was intrigued to find out why all the other guys only got four years and he got uh, about 14. He was 48 to 62 and that sparked an interest, I suppose, that has gone, maybe it's gone a little bit too far. My wife um, thinks there's a third person at this stage. I've been doing so much research and um, living with Oscar Trainer on the basis that I, I was, was inspired after the FAI journey to uh, take a, a master's at DCU. So I did a part time over two years. I'm very close to the finish of that now. And my thesis is actually on Oscar Trainer and his I suppose his contribution to Irish football that has gone a little bit away from our memory. In fact, it's fully gone. A lot of people wouldn't know what he's done for Irish football, but at a, at a very precarious time for soccer, if, if we call it that to distinguish between it and the GAA, um, at a very precarious time when the GAA ban attempted to eradicate soccer out of our society and when the government and the church were supporting that, it took a, a very special person and a very special group of people to make sure that soccer stayed strong. And he and his sidekick in the FAI at that time, Joe Wickham, uh, did untold work, not just to protect the game here in Ireland, but also to grow and advance it internationally, make FIFA recognise the FAI. And, uh, you know, particularly after the declaration of Ireland as a republic, um, we were the first sport, if you like, that was able to go off out there and, and represent the country as the Republic of Ireland, you know, and you were never going to do that in GA world. So there was important steps, milestones, and I think the trainer's, you know, story is, is quite incredible. 14 years of age, had to go out and fend for his family. He wasn't from the bourgeois set who were, you know, 
speaking poetry off Skelga and meeting in lovely rooms and rap minds to talk about the revolution. He was your quintessential north side Dubliner. Things not not easy working uh, the way he did. And he also was a very good soccer player. He was an excellent goalkeeper for a period of time. Uh, he played for Frankfurt uh, in Dublin. He played for Strandville, uh, another club called Abbey that he played a few games for. But he had a love for soccer from an early age. And though he, he became radicalised uh, in terms of his nationalism, um, he was also a, a man who had soccer very, very close to his heart. And he got to the point where he, he got a... He got a, a professional contract at Belfast Celtic, which was a huge move for him to head up to Belfast. But he headed up there at a, at a, a precarious time, really, in, a, in that, um, you know, Carson had arranged for the, the Ulster volunteers to be ready to fight. He was going up there playing for the, the only really strong Catholic team. And um, there's some amazing stories about the matches he played up there. And he had a great couple of years. He did very well. And his uh, career looked to be on a, a good path. But... For, for whatever reason, his form dipped. I think I think the reason that I could find, one of the reasons I found was he played in a game against Linfield and um, it was in 1912. And the crowd rioted just after half time. Two people were shot inside the stadium and outside the stadium, three more were shot. The game got abandoned. And a very um, interesting report that I read the replay of the, the game when it was eventually played, uh, Linfield won 4-0. And Belfast Celtic objected to their, their players not being able to concentrate on the game because shots were being fired in the air by the crowd all through the game. And the IFA deemed that, actually, that's fine. The Catholics be used to that. We'll, we'll give the three points or two points, as it was, to the uh, to the Linfield team. So so that, that he was up in, in the north uh, he, he was witnessing this at, at a you know a very important time in, in Irish history. Um, he came back down to Dublin. His form dipped and got lots of matches where, where you know he was getting criticism in the press up there. And he, he made his way back to, uh, to Dublin. And the 1914 Bachelors War massacre took place just after the Hope Gun running. And he says himself in his own witness statement that that was it. That was the turning point. I gave up football because I, I saw a different vision. And um, from that point, he drilled. He was um, very efficient in Fairview Park. He would uh, get the lads after soccer training to come and do volunteer drills for the, for the IRA. And he started to make a little bit of a name for himself in that locality. And there was plenty of, plenty of uh, I suppose, other aspiring rebels that were neighbours of his. You mentioned the Bolands, um, Harry Colley. Frank Henderson, who was a great friend of his, um, who would later defect to the GAA and denounce soccer, but he was a good soccer player. In the Tom Ennis, Thomas McDonough, Tom Clark, uh, Carl Brewer. These guys were all living nearby. And so there was a, 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 a fervor going on at the time. You know, the, the Irish Citizen Army were nearby. And he was a very working class man. You know, as I said, he wasn't part of the, the set who were, who were writing poetry about this. He was um, just the grafter. And that seemed to be the, the moniker that stayed with him. You know, he fought in 1916. Connolly put him in charge of the Metropole Hotel, which is across the road from the GPO. Um, he got jailed in Frongok. He was one of the last to be released from Frongok, which was interesting because um, they, they they're the, the last releases for the for those further up the command. And um, you know, he, he survived 1916. He survived jail in Frongok, and he came back and, and played a huge part in the War of Independence rose up the ranks of the IRA uh, to the point that the, 
the last major um, onslaught or, or assault, you know, before the truce and, and treaty talks with the burning of the custom house. And, and he led that venture um, for many years maligned over that in terms of the uh, result. Um, people just historians had, had made a, a decision that it was a bad military manoeuvre. But um, as we know, and, and later evidence pointed that uh, De Valera demanded a spectacle at the time. There were a lot of IRA uh, arrests. There were five deaths. There were civilian deaths. War isn't easy. But um, for some reason, Trainer gets singled out for uh, an event that ultimately a few weeks later led to the truce. You know, the burning of the Custom House is, is an amazing story. Um, won't go into too much detail here, but... What's been very interesting is there were far more casualties elsewhere around the country and none of those um, military leaders who, who took part in that ever get any criticism. But Trainer, he his his memory is is tainted a little bit or, or our memory of Trainer as a nation is tainted in, in that the historians had a cut at him over that. Uh, they had a cut at him over those um, and then of course when it went to the Civil War and he was not in the four courts, but he was nearby and his of what he was trying to do there gets uh, ridiculed quite often. But again, there's more evidence to suggest that he, he, he did some good stuff. There. And then, of course, he, he took on the church and he uh, later on with the, with the football and, you know, the, the idea that this guy um, who became a politician then, you know, having face bullets for years and years, he then became a politician and he was a Fianna Faller. Uh, spoke to his grandnephew who said that he was more a labour man at heart, but he was a man of the people and he built up a huge support, um, a huge number of constituencies voted from the north side. Uh, he won 12 out of 13 elections and eventually Charles Hockey would inherit that um, that Fianna Fáil north side sort of swell that was in place in those days. So he 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 got through his political career. There's nothing too spectacular, though. He had three ministerial posts. He had... Um, a role, a serious role to play. He was Minister of Defence during the emergency or the war, as we know it. And th there, there was probably a, also a hint there that he was under Deb's shadow for a long time. But when the when the dust settles and when you know historians look back and write about uh, the various people who took part in the revolution years and where the country went to. Um, he's left behind. There's no biography. You know, some of the people I just mentioned now, there's two, three, four biographies. Why do you think that is, Niall? Why was Oscar Trainer marginalised in this way? It can't simply be because he played uh, football. Or was yeah. it? No. So so, so his, um, from what I can find, and uh, his, I suppose, his revolutionary input, you know, people ask questions. Well, he, he never got shot, you know. So you have uh, the others who, who became legends you know because they they were shot and killed at young ages um he didn't so he wasn't he, a martyr basically he wasn't a martyr exactly gary but yet he was um at the forefront of all the major mm. you know i suppose battles that we would uh, consider <laughs> as that revolutionary period did have you know and he he did some very successful raids and on the, the rotunda rink got all the mails the, the post office that he that he robbed um spectacularly of all the important mail to Doug castle of course who run the country at the time he worked hand in hand with collins at one stage but i think then you have to look at uh his anti-treaty stance mm. and where the country moved to see you know how he kind of fell out of, of favor um 
But he, he, he did. He didn't write his own memoirs, like not like like Todd Andrews or Ernie O'Malley. Was he one of that generation who didn't really speak about his revolutionary past? It, it appears that way, even though he was in the doll for over thirty years and um, held many ministerial posts. He, he he he, you know, it would have been difficult for him. He was in the government then that had to sort of take out their own in the fifties when the reemergence of the IRA came and mm. former comrades were being. Uh, you know, were being arrested and jailed, and um, he, he turned down. Uh, he, you know, as Minister of Justice, he managed to reprieve a few of his old comrades. But uh, it, it was a, a world probably that put him at odds with those anti-treaty because he later became a, a recognised politician and did the right thing for the growth of the country. But he had also, you know, um, as a, as, a, as an anti-treaty person, had upset the establishment. And he then took on the church, as you know. I don't know. You, you know the story. You told me about it as well on the well, tour. Well, well, yeah. I mean, there's a few things. I mean, it's so fascinating his life, but still dedicated as a football person. Didn't equate being a GEA person with, with with Irishness. Right through his life, there's a number of controversies. So 1938, Douglas Hyde is the new president of Ireland, and he attends an international in Dalyman Park with Oscar Trainer who's a committed football person. Did, did, did he even write papers, Niall, about, um, you know, advocating for football as a game? I mean, he, he put pen to paper trying to trying to advocate that, that it was not less Irish to play soccer. Yeah, no, that, that was in the late 20s before he right. came. And he, he wrote in the Irish Sports Weekly, he wrote two articles and uh, famously called Who Are the Shanines? And there was a, that was a name given to, to guys who were playing soccer instead of joining in the, the big nationalist push and uh to, you know to, to play Gaelic football and hurling or bog ball as the soccer lads would call the Gaelic <laughs> football is and um you're right November the 15th 1938 uh, newly elected president Douglas Hyde came to watch Ireland v Poland interestingly there's a, fa- a fabulous photograph of that occasion Deb on one side of, of the president and Oscar Trainer on the other there was no sign of Lord Home Patrick, who was the uh, president at that time. And I didn't know whether they were uh, avoiding in the press or whatever, but Trainer was out there in front in the in the sort of, not that there's no such thing as a royal box, but uh, he, he was obviously close then at that point. And he, he ran for presidency of the FAI unsuccessfully before he got it 10 years later. So... He, but, he was, but, he was, but the significance of that game is that Douglas Hyde gets banned from the GA as a result. Well, so well that's had, it, yeah. Yeah. So presumably, yeah. Niall, ideologically, given his stance in relation to, you know, what it was to be Irish uh, and that he didn't equate, you know, Irishness per se with, with, with Gaelic games and so on, ideologically that put him at odds very much with, with what the, the, the status quo was at that time. And I know one of the things that he did was as Minister for Defence, uh, he, I think it was in the 40s, he amended the special status that the GAA players had who were, were playing GAA within the, in the defence forces. Uh, basically, again, on the basis that, you know, that didn't make you more Irish and everybody was kind of, as it were, equal. Uh, so this must have ideologically put him very much at odds with, with what the, with the prevailing kind of view was. Yeah, effectively, he brought foreign sports into the Irish army. Uh. <laughs> oh, okay and by foreign <laughs> we mean english that's right <laughs> now N- N- i just want to quote oprah winfrey here and <laughs> let's row back uh, to something that you said just uh, earlier on and it, it it's kind of 
slightly shocked myself and uh, yeah. Aon and I, should we say, just about when you said the eradication of soccer, uh, that's a very, very, very strong word. So I think it would probably need some, some, uh, some follow-up, as it were, some support play, Niall. So you don't think yeah. that it was just a question of having banned games. Do you think that there was an active, active policy to literally get rid of it altogether? Well, okay, let, let me just point you to Michael Cusick, founder of the GAA, and he has a, a, a wonderful quote. Looking back now, of course, it, it's, it's, we've got to think of it uh, in today's, and not in today's terms, but he said, you know, something on the basis that footballers and football is a West British abortion. And but this, the, this, this guy played cricket now. Like, like Michael Cusick was a cricketer. Hmm. So what yeah. is it about soccer that just winds people up of that mindset more? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. That's that's just the way it was. And, um, you know, I've, I've looked at uh, sort of research in places like Donegal and Dundalk, you know, the, the soccer float mm. on St. Patrick getting broken up. And, you know, before they could go down the the, the, the town in, in uh, Dundalk, and there was a nice report on that. Sorry, um, say, say that again. There was a soccer float on was it St. Patrick's Day or something? A parade and um, it got broken up and wasn't wasn't able to carry on in the parade. You know what? What year, what year was this? Um, I early nineteen hundreds, kind of around that time. Later than that, no, later than that. I would think it's in about the thirties. I should I shouldn't have said it until I had my proof here on this. I my my colleagues in my student class would be <laughs> uh, not being able. <laughs> Okay, well, 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 maybe we might publish this podcast after your results come out so that you don't uh, dock any marks for, for not knowing the date. But that is interesting. So, so this fervent anti-soccer feeling was there, even, even, even an attempt of a local club to celebrate their endeavours. They, the, they broke up the float. Well, that's it. And, and then you've got other things that were happening. Like each GAA club appointed three vigilantes and they reported to nobody, but they banned who they wanted to ban their word was as good as, as law. So it was a, a chaotic situation in some cases because I, I found uh, some some offerings where clubs who were playing a big GA match against another club were just throwing the best player into the ring and saying, oh, he was at a soccer match and we'll get him banned and, and he won't play against us. You know, it, it just became... <laughs> a total- well, there's a suggestion on on one of the websites. I think it's the GAA's own website that some of the um the, the some of those in the vigilante uh, or the vigilance committee uh, were a little bit too vigilant and may have had uh, uh, some sort of somewhat selfish reasons uh, for 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 trying to report players snooping uh, and so on. There was a guy um, called Eddie Devlin, who uh, you may have heard of now, who played Gaelic football for County Tyrone, uh, and he was in UCD and he was banned. I think it was 1953. Uh, received a ban for having the cheek to uh, cycle by Lansdowne Road on the day of a rugby international, uh, and he was actually on his way back from GAA training. So, so it, at times it it clearly was a little bit a little bit too good for what it was trying to do. Can you understand that, by the way, that they would have had that cultural need in a sense to you know because this was this wasn't just about sport. Obviously, this was about culture and identity, early identity politics in a way. Can you understand where they might have even tried to do that? I, I fully understand. I come from a, a GAA, uh, both sides, very staunch GAA, and, and, and any of the families of any of the, the, the legs to play uh, football. So, um, you know, I get what that was all about. I think uh, where, where 
the trainer deserves great praise is coming out against that in the, in the, in the midst of, you know, the country finding itself and establishing itself as, as you know, as a, an, an, you know, an independent Gaelic Ireland and this, the push to remove soccer out of the equation is understandable. But I think, you know, it, there's, there's some things you can point back to. For instance, you know, 1916, the amount of soccer players that took place, yeah. that, sorry, that in, the, in operations right up to the, the, the other events of the uh, revolution. They're kind of airbrushed out of history a little bit because it doesn't suit the narrative. And the narrative wasn't that strong around 1916. You know, there's, um, there's evidence of the GAA going to London immediately after 1916, pleading for a tax break and uh, going to, to MPs, Home Rule MPs, who were helping them in London and Westminster to achieve a, a status. And it's most obvious from letters that they have written at that point that they were almost disowning 1916 uh, in order to get this tax break. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, in a number of books. And, and um, it's really worth reading because... I don't know if you guys remember the story growing up, but we were all told that Hill 16 was built from the rubble. Yes, we have debunked that. Uh, and I think this is it. what's interesting is that people, after a period of time, tried to change history. So obviously the Hill 60 or Hill 60 was was built in 1915. Uh, and then over a period of time, they decided because Hill 60 has some British Army connotations, they decided to change it to, to be known as Hill 16 m- many years <laughs> later. And and then and then it was decided that they, it had been built from the rubble of the 1916 rising, which is impossible because it was built in 1915. But it just yeah. suited the narrative uh, at the time yeah. that this is post independence. And then of course this whole we've heard stories about down in Waterford where there was a, if you talk about Bloody Sunday, which certainly changed the dynamic of Crow Park forever. You know, there's there's stories in Waterford of conflict between soccer and GEA and the chairman of the county board in Waterford said, well, when they were, they were looking for the rebels on, on Bloody Sunday, they didn't go into Jadymount Park, as in, you know, the true Irish people, the true Irish patriots were in Croke Park. That's where the revolution was happening. Jadymount Park are, are, is, is, for, is for corner boys. It's, it's, it's not an Irish endeavor. Um, Oscar Trainer. Interesting enough, right? You mentioned the, the late forties. He becomes president of the G of the sorry, Jesus, very interesting. He becomes he becomes president of the FAI, and that's at the key moment. Did you say forty eight? So that's that's when the forty eight. Yeah, so that's that's the key moment in Irish soccer history. When, as you said earlier, Ireland is becoming a republic. There's been this weird scenario for the last uh, twenty five odd years where players have been playing for both the IFA and the FAI. So we can think of about thirty or so players who've done that. Uh, you know, the IFA don't recognise the FAI. It's hard for the FAI to get international games in the early years. You know, people like Johnny Carey played for both associations, people like Paddy Moore, people like, you know, um, uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, your, your pal Alex Stevenson, who, who I know you know his family, uh, playing for both associations, very, very, very mixed up. And then it must have been in the early stages of Oscar Trainer's uh, reign, if you like, that that decision was made to make the IFA effectively Northern Ireland and the FAI effectively the Republic of Ireland and to limit the selection of players within those two jurisdictions. And he would have been involved in that, I'm quite sure. Yeah, absolutely. And Joe Wickham probably played a major role, but having somebody as strong beside him, you know, a minister of the government at that point, assisting with this push uh, to, to create an international uh, feel and flavour about the, the soccer team, which in, in turn, you know, would augur well for the country. I mean, Trainer believed that. 
And um, you're talking, you're, you're going back to some of the players you mentioned there. I think one of the most interesting of all soccerers, who I did not know, uh, shame on me until I started doing this, was Jimmy Dunn. Yes. Who, a former IRA attorney, uh, and the great story about him is when he was uh, he was he was in in Germany in in Bremen in 1939, and 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 the the Nazi salute was performed by the German side, and so the Irish side feel they have to do the same thing. And Jimmy Dunn roars down the team, and says, "Remember 1916? Remember the the Battle of Ockram?" Um, because he was offended by the Irish team doing something German. These these people are fascinating. He was from Ringsend. Yeah, and again, soccer is meant to be the, the, the almost the garrison game, the British yeah. game. But another big point of proof. And he went on to be a serious footballer in England after that, um, or sorry, before that, at that time, before that actual international. Uh, his his record still stands. Jamie Vardy scored 11 consecutive top flight games. Um, Jimmy Dunn's record of 12 still stands. Uh, 41 goals one season, and he scored over 30 goals in three seasons in a row. There's only Alan Shearer in recent times that's done that. Um, and we know nothing about him. You know, these are the no. things I was finding. I was delving into Oscar Trainer, um, but Trainer, Trainer did really good work. And 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 a great event happened that's not celebrated at all in football. And I think it should be right up there with anything of Italia ninety or whatever. And that was, um, you know, Goodison Park in nineteen forty nine yeah. when Art, having declared itself a republic, you know, got a game against England. In Goodison Park, it was the return of, of a friendly that was uh, played and were, that England had won really well a year before. And interestingly, Oscar Trainer, who had fought against the, the, the British in 1916 and the War of Independence, he led the FAI and the Irish delegation who were proudly presenting themselves as the Republic of Ireland. And the newspaper reports before the game called them the Free State and, you know, other names. And there's, there's great, in the archives out in UCD, the FAI archives, that there's great um, letters written by Wick suggesting that uh, they understand that they're now playing against the Republic of Ireland. And, and a big thing that, that happened was, of course, Ireland won the game. You know, they won the game. Con Martin and um, uh, Farrell scored, Paddy Farrell scored the goals. Um, they, it was an incredible event. So you imagine this guy, in, in, you know, defending the Metropolitan Hotel beside the GPO, going to prison, uh, fighting the War of Independence, leading the IRA, probably involved in Bloody Sunday, but there's, there's not a lot on that at him personally, but he would have been central to it. And uh, he's out leading the FPA as a Republic of Ireland minister at the time. And he's uh, he's there when Ireland have one of the most famous victories in its history, you know. And what do we do about it? They try and write it off the record books and say that it wasn't a full international and hungry have the distinction in, in quizzes and sports quizzes and what have you, I've been told that, that the first team to beat England in their own soil ever was hungry. Well, it wasn't. It was Ireland sometime well, well, And what's interesting actually about Con Martin, who scored that day, scored a penalty, he had a Leinster Championship medal with Dublin and wasn't awarded it in 1941 because he discovered he played soccer. And he didn't get his medal until 1971, even though he was Irish enough to go and play for Ireland against England and score a goal, not Irish enough to get his Leinster Championship medal. Well, yeah, and, and you know, the, I think the the victory against England, what it meant, great moment for Irish football that was played down at home. You know, I, some some press reports went high in it, but it was it was very quick. You you can kind of see see it drifting out of the news quite quickly when really it should have been her. I mean, you know, Ray Helton scored a winner against them forty years later. 
And we're still talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And uh, it was, it was, it was, it was. I totally agree. It was a kind of airbrushed out of history. And anybody who, who who I grew up with, any you know, who'd been around at that time, told me that it was pretty much airbrushed out of history. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. There's a question, Niall, that uh, we're very interested in. It's about the 1955 uh, game between uh, Ireland and Yugoslavia, which was initially slated for 1952, but was banned uh, on the basis that uh, the, the Yugoslavians were, were, were communists. Uh, under uh, an Archbishop Stepanak was in uh, the Archbishop of Belgrade was under house arrest and so on uh, and the Catholic Church decided that this game uh, with the potential game with Ireland at uh, Dalyman Park in 1952 wouldn't happen uh, now I'm sure you know all about this can I ask you was uh, Oscar Trainer the president of the FAA at that point? Absolutely and heavily involved and stood up to Archbishop McQuaid uh, it was October the 19th, 1955. Um, the whole point of the game being banned as far as Archbishop McQuaid was concerned was that it was promoting communism and the communists had, had treated Bishop Stepanak, as you said, terribly um, in, in the, back home some years earlier. Um, as the, the game was, was, is it on, is it off? Uh, Philip Green, one of the most famous commentators we ever had, he... Um, he decided to opt out and wouldn't commentate on the game. They say Archbishop McQuaid got to him personally uh, to, to, to prevent the game being aired. Oh, I didn't um, know that. I wouldn't say it was that difficult thing to do. Uh, and I'm sure it was uh, it was done with haste. <laughs> anyway, so... Yep. so headlines, tabloid headlines were used to them. But one of the first tabloid headlines that came out that I can see in Irish sport, in particular Irish soccer, was following Philip Green's uh, exit from the from the commentary box that day, and the headline said, "Reds turn green yellow." <laughs> Very good, but it fe- it feels like uh, almost uh, an episode of Father's Head. It does. Yeah, there was there was, there was uh, the an Legion Mary party were, group that were trying to get people to go to the game. Yeah, Patrick Kavanagh, etc. And then the Legion of Mary were giving it socks outside, saying, "Don't go to the game." Yeah, it was like an episode of Father Ted. Absolutely, like Michael Jackson beat it. Niall, when you you just moving along, just thinking about time here. Niall, you obviously uh, are, are very famous for being a great player uh, in in professional soccer and so on for for Arsenal and City and Ireland and all the rest of it. But you played a lot of uh, hurling, isn't that right? When you grew up, as as you were growing up. Yeah, I played every sport. You know, I suppose the ban was lifted in in seventy one. It came into play in seventy two. I was six years of age, seven. I was quite tall, so I joined the under eight team uh, up at Manorton. But I was also playing for Robert Emmett's hurling football. Uh, we were out playing matches morning, noon, and night. All the kids on the street, and thankfully, my family 
were were really uh, supportive and drove me to all the matches and you know encouraged me to do everything. But there were some kids, you know, for, with strong GA backgrounds that weren't allowed to play soccer, and you know that 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 was pretty evident in, in, in our little community where we grew up in in Perrystown. Um, I suppose the when you look back at the GA announcing the results of, of the ban in 71, I mean, it's very interesting listening to the president saying, well, look, you know, I think the, the, the words he used were, there'll be no celebrating this. In, in other words, you're doing the wrong thing and, and, you know, this shouldn't be happening. And that's the way it was introduced, that you were now actually allowed to play soccer and be a member of the GAA. Um, I didn't witness any of that. I came just on the, on the cusp of, of being allowed to do it. And, and I never was ever discouraged. Um, I did actually come back after I played for the Dublin minor hurling team I got permission from Arsenal to come back the following year because I was still underage and we got to an All-Ireland final when I was 16 and I was hoping when I was 17 we might have, we might win and I, I stayed playing a bit of hurling in London with um, with the groundsman at Arsenal he was a, he was a great character um, and, and so, so we you know, I, I still had this GA thing in me, even though I'd gone to play soccer in Arsenal. But the, the manager at the time, when I went down to go to Park to the training session after the, my soccer season had ended, said, "You're okay, one back to England. You know, uh, we don't want you." So that was kind of a, a moment for me when I, I realised that the whole GA thing was over for me, and I better go and make it at this soccer now. You know. But, but you uh, didn't feel sorry. You didn't feel in any way under pressure, or you didn't get any of that sense of, of division. You had a good experience doing both. But look, my dad had uh, a wonderful early career as a hurler, county hurler. He scored three goals in a league final in Croke Park when, when league finals were as big as All-Ireland finals. Uh, he was only 18, 19 at the time, and he had to go to England for work. Um, my, my mother, who he married, was a teacher, but she, you know, Ireland of the time, a married woman couldn't take a man's job. So the two of them went in, and uh, they came home, and that rule changed. And my dad's career didn't happen. He missed out on, on, on a great hurling career but he was never annoyed about that he just encouraged all of us to play as much sport as we could and I think it was it was looking back it was a real plus for me because as I said we'd other kids um who I won't name now but their dads wouldn't let them near the soccer but I mentioned it like like we, we've spoken to a lot of ex-players who have had different experiences all right so so Dave Langan we didn't speak to him but it says in his book that like he got six of the best in school for being caught playing soccer in front of a, a school assembly right we know the story of Liam Brady effectively being expelled from school we know John Giles said he didn't feel Irish because of the treatment he got in the Christian Brothers in, in Brunswick Street we know that Owen Hahn said that there was a, 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 a Christian brother gave him such a hard time for playing soccer that he used to hide his face in, in team photographs of Stella Maris Ronnie Whelan however says not a, not an issue when he was growing up. He played soccer. He played GAA. It, 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 that uh, that difficulty wasn't there in his background, so it wasn't the same for every person. But when you went to England, I, I mentioned in some of the things you said because I I know there's a story about you making your debut for Arsenal and being followed around the pitch by a, a Liverpool player who called you a Fenian bastard for the entire game. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. We don't have to name the player, but I think we know who we're talking about. Is that uh, true? Not? <laughs> and uh, I'm just interested in: Did you find it culturally soccer very different to uh, to the GEA? And and the reason I'm asking that question is I know when you spoke about Windsor Park, at the end of the game in Windsor Park, you said that something quite GAA happened in the dressing room when a member of the Northern Irish team came in and spoke to the to the Republic of Ireland team. And that's the kind of ethic that you were used to as a GEA person. Do you find that culturally? Soccer and GA was very different. Yeah, or, I, I'd, yeah. I'd agree with that. I agree with that, Aon. And I mentioned that uh, later later on 
because um, it was an incredible moment. We, you know, the, the, the stadium was full of animosity. It was full of hatred that night, you know, and, and Billy Bingham leading the charge on the Northern Ireland side. Um, Jack responding to it. They were arguing on the touchline. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the atmosphere was, was just incredible. And, you know, and you'll never, ever see anything like it again. Uh, the troubles were at their absolute worst. There was talk of the game being postponed um, till safer times, but the game went ahead. And in the circumstances, you know, Alan McLaughlin got us out of jail and got us on, on the plane to, to America for the 94 World Cup. Incredible moment for us. You just wanted to get in the dressing room, uh, get out as quick as we can. Suddenly, you know, in kind of GAA fashion in many ways, Alan McDonald, their centre-half, came and, and he spoke, I suppose, as a sportsman, but almost, you know, there was there was traits of, you know, sort of statesman-like words and what he said about our country and how we were footballers and we weren't to, you know, to be known as anything else and that we'll wish you guys well in in America when you go and play because we put the test to you. You're just better than us. Go and prove that we were a good team by doing well out there. As I know, some of you supported what Northern Ireland were doing in 82 and 86. And... Um, some of our players were stunned, never saw anything like that in their lives and probably never did afterwards. You know, to visit the uh, the other team's dressing room was just not on the agenda in any soccer uh, league that I've, anybody's played in. And it was um, hair on the back of the neck time, you know, rising and, and everybody looked going, well, what, what, what a brave man to come in and do that. And um, I suppose that made me feel better about being an Irish footballer. You know, it made me feel we're going off to the World Cup. We're all very happy. But I thought, well, hasn't that guy got some constitution uh, coming from the background that he did and the circumstances we were in to come in and do that? Um, I think it was a lovely moment. And I certainly will never forget it as any of the players who were there who witnessed it. No, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting to you. What do you feel we should do to remember Oscar Trainer? What's what's the one thing that you, you would hope that we could we could do to to remember his contribution? Or to remember, you know, the, the, the difficult journey that football has had in this country? Well, my first statement to you, or the first few words that I, I um, spoke to you, I mentioned that nobody took the trouble to write a book about a guy who was so involved in, in three huge aspects of Irish life at the time. The, the revolution, uh, politics and the, the, the growth and, and change in the country um, right up to the 60s. And obviously his his uh, football both as a player and and as a um administrator of the game and pushing football internationally as well as domestically um somebody out there i think should take it by the scruff of the neck because i've looked at you know i go into bookshops and i look at all of the uh revolutionary books that are uh, you know in play there's some people that have 30 40 books about them but this guy played a huge role you know um if it was just his revolution alone we should look at it if it was just his football alone, you could look because he was a man who, who did so much as a player at a young age. But then to go on to administratively do what he did in the football world, I think there's, there's great material there. And and also then I think, um, you know, uh, his, his work as a politician. Now, of course, being a politician and staying in that game for over 30 years, it's hard to get credit, you know. I mean, the guy wasn't shot dead early and young. This is one, one of the big things that, that went against him as, as we uh, look back. It's, it's, it's great for your political CV to get shot dead in fairness. It's, yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good career move. Um, yeah, it is. But <laughs> what, what I, maybe yourselves could uh, delve a bit deeper into it. 
and give him give him a bit of justice because what's out there on him is it condemns him for his military leadership and that's not accurate. Other, other people have written, Liz Gillis has written a book and proved that uh, the, the burning of the custom house you know, was actually a, a, a success and um, Trainer comes out very well in that book. But others of our mainstream historians have, have given him a hard time and I think it's probably time that somebody took up the mantle. Somebody who can write, somebody who can, uh, who can do it justice um, and tell the world a little bit more about Oscar Trainer's story. That's, that's a job for... Uh... That's a job for somebody who's, who's listening in who wants to take on. Niall, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, Niall, thank you very much. Great, lad. Thanks for being See you, Niall. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks, Liam. So thank you for listening. That was the Football Talking Tour podcast with myself, Aon Arirdan, and yourself, Gary Cook. So our Football Walking Tour, you can go on to littlemuseum.ie to find out about the Southside one, footballwalkingtour at gmail.com for the Northside one, and on Twitter, we're at footballtourdub. If something's free, why would you turn it down? I mean, a free haircut from a five-year-old. <laughs> oh, no. Or a free sample of onion paste. Oh. <clears throat> well, then, how about a free tour of your neighbour's new shed? Oh, sounds, well... Mm. OK, look, they were bad examples. But how about a free eye test and free glasses from the 69-euro range of Specsavers with your PRSI? Well, that sounds like something to smile about. Book an appointment or find out more at specsavers.ie.